1: This is a CBC podcast. Hi, I'm Bob McDonald. welcome to Quirks and Quarks. On this week's show, does antimatter have anti-gravity? Scientists check if Isaac Newton's anti-apple would have fallen up. What
2: we do is we just let them go and then look for signs of the effect
1: of gravity. Did it pull them down or did they go up? And what's on the menu 450 million years ago? Looking at an ancient trilobite's last meal.
0: You know, you're some sort of millimeter-sized worm that burrows into the gut. You could find yourself being digested, you know, subject to sort of zombie digestion by an already dead predator.
1: Plus, the earliest cowboys in the Americas might have been African slaves. Why a hospital superbug might not be what we thought it was. And ugly babies appreciating the less cute and cuddly infants of the animal kingdom. All this today on Quirks and Quarks. They had a pretty good run. The trilobites lived and thrived in the world's oceans for a quarter of a billion years from the dawn of complex animal life 540 million years ago to their extinction about 250 million years ago. They were arthropods, shelled creatures resembling modern roly-poly bugs, some tiny, some growing to more than half a meter long. And in their nearly 300 million years, they diversified to live in every corner of the ancient world. But because they've been gone for so long, we know relatively little about how they lived which is what makes a new find by paleontologist Per Allberg and his colleagues so exciting. It's a trilobite with the remains of its last meal preserved in its gut. Dr. Alberg is a professor of evolutionary organismal biology at Uppsala University in Sweden. Dr. Alberg, welcome back to Quirks and Quarks. Thank you very much. Tell me about the fossil trilobite that you studied.
0: It's a pretty small one. This particular one's about three and a half centimetres long, and it sits inside a lump of hard rock that's formed within softer sediment that's been found originally in a ploughed field in in the Czech Republic. Collected in 1908, a collector broke it open with a hammer and he could see the trilobite inside. It eventually made its way into a local museum. But what's special about this one is that it's been evident for a while, you can see it when you look at the actual specimen, that there is something inside it. And you can see that there are things in there, a line of little shell fragments. And my Czech colleague, Peter Krafts, who's really been the scientific leader on this, has suspected for years that this might be preserved gut content. But He's had no technique by which this could be studied without ruining the specimen, so he's just left the thing alone.
1: So then how did you go about investigating this uh, line of what looked like a digestive tract?
0: Fairly recently, a new and very powerful technique of three-dimensional X-ray scanning uh, has been developed using a, a big electron accelerator called the synchrotron, and it worked absolutely beautifully. We were able to not just see, but actually identify near enough all of the little shell fragments that make up the gut content.
1: (laughs) Shell fragments? So what were they?
0: Basically, it's been eating a range of of little animals, all of which had hard but not terribly hard shells. It seems to have gone for small and fairly easily crushed prey. There are some bivalves, some clams basically in there. There are ostracods, which are little crustaceans with little like bivalve shells. They look like tiny kind of millimetre long swimming beans. These still exist today. And then there are some extinct animals as well. There are echinoderms in there. That's like starfish and sea urchins today. But it's an extinct kind of echinoderm called the stylophoran, which looks weirdly like a little armor-plated electric guitar. And then uh, an entirely extinct group of animals called the hyoliths, which are just sort of cone-shelled things, like little kind of ice cream cone shells with a lid at one end. So, so this is the sort of thing it's been eating.
1: So what does this tell you then about the lifestyle of the trilobite?
0: well you get the impression of something like a you know one of those robot vacuum cleaners but kind of animal version just sort of mot- motoring along on the seafloor and gobbling up whatever it's finding we're not even sure whether this is live prey it's taking or whether it's actually scavenging dead organisms it might be a combination of the two what is striking though is it's been eating very quickly and an awful lot is gut is absolutely jam-packed which is an odd sort of thing to, to find but we think we may have an explanation
1: for this Jam packed. You mean it was overeating a bit?
0: Well, absolutely, it was overeating a bit. But here's (laughs) the thing trilobites had a hard external shell, a hard exoskeleton, like arthropods today and like arthropods today they grew by molting so periodically they would shed this shell and this kind of soft but now somewhat larger trilobite would emerge and sort of puff itself up and then eventually its new shell would harden. When you in fact look at the, the shell of the trilobite itself you can see that there's a funny little kink in the middle where it looks as though it's just starting to come apart. So we suspect that this is sort of molting preparation that's why it's gorging itself like this. (laughs)
1: <laughs> so it's not just cracking the shells of what it's eating it's cracking its own shell by, by overeating sort of like kind of like uh, eating a huge meal and then popping the buttons of your shirt
0: yes exactly so
1: <laughs> how was it able to crack shells within its body did it munch them because usually when you see things eating shellfish they open the shell and eat the soft stuff inside but you're finding the shell parts in its body
0: I mean, some of the prey has been taken, like the ostracods and the hyaliths, are small enough to just swallow a whole. The echinoderms are bigger and they've been crunched up, but they were probably not terribly robust. And what we have preserved in this particular specimen is a plate called the hypostome that sits on the underside of the head and the back edge of which has a notch in it where the mouth goes. So, so there's a bit of a sort of something of a, a, like a kind of a blunt knife edge there. So they were probably not very powerful biters. And I think it's really a matter of just crunching up prey items that are so kind of small and and kind of brittle that it's easy to do even with relatively inadequate jaw apparatus. But then it's just been swallowing down everything without being at all selective.
1: Now in addition to the digestive tract and what the trilobite ate, what else did this fossil tell you?
0: Well it's got all these shell fragments in the gut. When we look at them they don't look at all like they've been etched by stomach acids. That's very unlike our own stomach in particular, if you think about it, which is strongly acid. But it is like the guts of crabs or these curious animals called horseshoe crabs, which are like a sort of, you know, living fossil branch among the arthropods. And if we're seeing similar gut chemistry in these guys, it suggests that actually this style of of food digestion without acid is something that goes way, way back among these animals. It's some sort of ancient common inheritance of this group. So that was a big discovery.
1: Now, was there any sign that uh, the trilobite itself was being preyed upon?
0: Oh, absolutely. Yes, indeed. Uh, this poor animal came to a very sticky end when it was buried under a, like a couple of centimetres of mud. Little worms burrowed down towards it to scavenge the remains. We find their sort of burrow tubes still nicely preserved in the sediment. And what's kind of interesting there is what they've done. So they all go down towards the trilobites. A few burrow into the very front of the head, in front of the stomach, and seem to have a jolly time there. There's a whole kind of tangle of burrows. It's an area where we would expect there to be glandular tissue, which would probably be quite tasty and easy to digest. But what they've studiously avoided is the gut itself. And that's an oddity because you think, well, you know, look, there's food in the gut. Why not, you know, go for the gut? But we suspect that the internal environment in the gut was still quite unpleasant. The digestive enzymes may still have been working. You know, you're some sort of millimetre-sized worm that burrows into the gut. You could find yourself being digested, you know, subject to sort of zombie digestion by an already dead predator rather than finding food for yourself, which, of course, is not a good way to go.
1: (laughs) If trilobites were so successful living on Earth for hundreds of millions of years and they were such voracious eaters, why aren't they still around today?
0: If I would hazard a guess, I would say that the gradual rise of things like crustaceans with better developed jaws likely caused the trilobites to become more and more ecologically marginalized. They never really seem to have innovated in a serious way, so they don't ever seem to have, for example, developed serious jaws or anything like that. And that perhaps was their undoing.
1: Dr. Alberg, thank you so much for your time.
0: Well, thank you very much indeed.
1: Dr. Per Alberg is a professor of evolutionary organismal biology at Uppsala University in Sweden. Antimatter sounds like science fiction, on the list with warp drives and dilithium crystals, but it's very real, if very strange. Physicists have shown that every particle has an equal and opposite antiparticle. There are anti-electrons and antiprotons, and they come together to form antiatoms and antimolecules. But it's enormously difficult to study antimatter because the one thing that science fiction gets right is that when antimatter touches real matter, you get a spectacular boom. And one of the things that scientists want to know is how antimatter behaves, apart from its explosive tendencies. For example, does antimatter follow the law of gravity like normal matter does? Or is there some kind of anti-gravity? Well, a large international collaborative experiment at CERN in Europe has answered part of that question. Dr. Timothy Friesen, an assistant professor of physics and astronomy at the University of Calgary, was part of the team. Dr. Friesen, welcome to Quirks and Quarks.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Bob. It's It's a real pleasure.
1: Now, I know you folks can make antimatter particles in these giant particle colliders, but why is it so difficult to understand how gravity affects it? Well, I mean, there's, there's
2: two things that are a real challenge. It's, it's making and, and confining antimatter and anti-hydrogen atoms, like you mentioned, but also that gravity is just incredibly weak. And so you need something that's not going to be sensitive to electric fields. So you need a neutral antimatter particle. And that's why it's, it's so hard to do.
1: Well, what are the particles that you actually create?
2: So we, this experiments at CERN, which is where we get our antiprotons. And so we take those antiprotons and the positrons, and what we do is we synth- synthesize the simplest antimatter atom you can think of, which is antihydrogen, so the antimatter version of hydrogen, and that's sort of our anti apple in this case.
1: Okay, and positrons are anti-electrons, right? That's right. Positrons are anti-electrons. Right? Okay, so then how do you set up the experiment to test how they're going to behave in, in gravity? The
2: concept is once we have our anti-hydrogen atoms, they actually behave, they have like a small magnet. So you can think of like a tiny, tiny little bar magnet. So we can set up very strong uh, superconducting magnet fields to trap and hold and confine those anti-hydrogen atoms. So once we collect a sample of a bunch of those anti-hydrogen atoms, what we do is we turn off that magnetic field that's confining them and just let them go up or down and then look for signs of the effect of gravity. Did it pull them down, or did they go up? Uh, and then we look at where those antihydrogen atoms hit our apparatus, and then they give that nice explosion, which gives lots of clear signals of which direction they went.
1: Oh, I see. So you're using the magnetic field to suspend them in the middle so they don't touch the walls. That's right. Then you just let them go, sort of like letting bees out of a jar kind of thing.
2: Yep, yeah, you just let them go and, and, and see how they behave in the gravitational field of the Earth. So when you did that, what did you see? Well, it, this probably doesn't sound so surprising, um, but we saw that they went down. So this is, it, it's, it's a simple statement for what was you know, decades of work to, to set up. Um, but when we released our trap, they fell down. Most of them went down, annihilated on the bottom of our apparatus in a way that's consistent with normal matter
1: gravity. Now, you say most of them went down. What did the other ones do?
2: Well, um, you know, we hold these antiatoms. They're very cold, half a degree above absolute zero, half a degree Celsius above absolute zero. But still, they're so tiny, so they're moving quite fast. So each atom might be moving at 100 meters per second. So when we release them, some of them are already going up. And so they, they, before they get a chance to turn around and come back down, they might hit our apparatus And so, what we expected is that about 80% should go down if gravity behaves normal, and that's consistent with what we observed.
1: Uh, Now, the ones that were going up, did they still behave according to the laws of gravity?
2: So, presumably they had the same forces on them as the ones that went down, and so they were being affected by gravity, but they didn't have a chance to fall back down before they found some matter to annihilate.
1: Okay. Now, when they do hit the walls of your container and they explode, how big are these explosions? (laughs) Uh,
2: Explosions, you know, uh, sort of a a grandiose term. So all of that matter. So, you know, that you have Einstein's E equals mc squared. So energy and and mass are, are equivalent. So that sort of mass energy all gets turned into some subatomic particles and sort of into energy that goes through our detector. So it's a very, very tiny amount of energy on the kind of a human scale of things, but it's very sensitive, We have very sensitive detectors that can see it quite clearly.
1: You're dealing with individual atoms here, but, but are they actually tiny, tiny, little itty-bitty nuclear explosions? Exactly,
2: yeah, they are tiny, tiny, little itty-bitty nuclear explosions. And it's a, a quite an efficient energy release, but it's still a very tiny amount of total energy.
1: Now, the fact that these antimatter particles fell down, being pulled by gravity, behaving just like regular matter, was that what you expected? If you look at
2: the theoretical predictions, it's very hard to construct a theory that would allow them to move up and have a sort of repulsive gravity. So, in some sense, this this is what you'd expect at this level of precision.
1: Now, what would it have meant if these antimatter particles had fallen upwards?
2: Oh, well, that that would have been a huge challenge for the the theorists to deal with. But uh, we're really interested in looking at this regime because we have antimatter and we know there's issues with our understanding of antimatter and we know there's issues with our understanding of gravity. So we know there's a problem somewhere. So looking at that intersection is really interesting. There have been some predictions that there's a repulsive gravity, but you have to come up with some sort of new force. So it would have meant like a a fundamental change to the way we understand the laws of physics. You'd have to add something completely new in that we've never seen before.
1: So why is it important to know this uh, behavior of antimatter and gravity?
2: Yeah, so I, I think one of the biggest mysteries in physics is why we don't see antimatter out in the universe. Because we think there's this sort of perfect mirror symmetry between matter and antimatter if you go back to the big bang you would have expected the same amount of matter and antimatter to be produced but as as we've talked about when they meet they explode they they destroy each other and just produce energy but we know our universe is made of matter and so we know there's something we that we just don't get about antimatter so looking at all of the things we can test with antimatter i guess is really important to understanding that mystery and gravity is is one of the forces that we haven't been able to probe with antimatter until now.
1: What's the next thing you'd like to know about antimatter?
2: Well, there's still some, some, some more questions, and for gravity, you know, I think the next step for us is, can we measure as precisely as possible that it falls down the same way? And the other big questions we're asking is, does antimatter or antihydrogen have the same color as regular matter? We know regular matter absorbs and emits very specific colors of light, and we know those colors very precisely. And so if we look at the color of the antihydrogen atom, sort of its internal structure, is it identical or not? And we can do very precise tests that way. And that's actually what's happening as we speak at CERN right now.
1: Dr. Friesen, thank you so much for your time. Oh Thank you so much, Bob. My pleasure. Dr. Timothy Friesen is an assistant professor of physics and astronomy at the University of Calgary. Put your mind back to the early 2000s. That's when many of us first heard about an antibiotic-resistant superbug called Clostridium difficile, also known as C. difficile. It was a contagious gut infection that brought on fever, cramps, dehydration, and diarrhea, and it could be severe enough to kill. Its worst effects were in hospitals in North America, where outbreaks hit already vulnerable patients.
3: My cousin, who I'm quite close with, said she thought I was going to die.
2: Well, he's a pretty big guy, and he's just lost all
3: the weight. She gets successful operation, then she die. Why? She was one of thousands of Quebecers who contracted a particularly virulent strain of C. difficile. 84 people died. 11 deaths. The outbreak killed hundreds before hospitals knew what hit them.
1: Those initial outbreaks caught healthcare professionals unaware and unprepared. Oh, the C. The difficile um, outbreak in the early 2000s was a major wake up call for the infection control community across Canada. That's Dr. Eve Lantin from McGill University, one of Canada's top experts on C. difficile. The biggest issue at the time was that due to lax hygiene in the hospitals, newly admitted patients were acquiring C. difficile from already infected patients or possibly from medical staff carrying it, so-called cross-transmission. But the medical community heeded the wake-up call. According to Lantin, since about 2014, when hospitals tightened up their infection control measures, there has been a 75% decrease in C. difficile infections in hospitals across Canada.
0: Some people would be more half-glass and think, well, we've decreased by 75%, it's a big victory. On the other hand, other people would say that, well, it's still one of the major causes of infections in hospitals. And even though it decreased by 75%, there's still a need to decrease it even further to make our our care even safer.
1: Well, a new study published in the journal Nature Medicine may finally explain the origins of the last 25% of hospital-onset C. difficile infections. It turns out people may not be catching it in hospitals. They're bringing it in with them. Dr. Mary Hayden is the senior author of the new study. She's the director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Rush University Medical College in Chicago. Hello, Dr. Hayden, and welcome to our program.
4: Very happy to be here.
1: What was your first clue to the source of the C. difficile infections that hospitals couldn't stop?
4: Uh, Well, we knew that much of the transmission early on of these epidemic strains was due to cross transmission, and we knew that because of epidemiologic investigations and also because these organisms were genetically the same, they had the same genome. But we also knew that there were increasing reports of development of C. difficile infection among patients by strains that could not be linked genomically, uh, patient to patient, or could not be definitively linked epidemiologically. And particularly the genomics was what was really uh, cluing us into there perhaps being another source of these infections in these patients.
1: So what did the fact that these bugs weren't all genetically the same suggest to you?
4: So it was either that there was some uncharacterized or unknown, undetected source in the hospital, so an environmental source or a patient source or a healthcare worker source that was uh, unknown, but this is much less likely uh, epidemiologically. And then again, we did not have genomic evidence for that. And more likely, we thought it was because of patients uh, carrying these strains in silently, so uh, silently colonized, and then um, being exposed to some trigger. We were suspicious of antibiotic exposure Um, being the trigger that might then result in the patient having some change in their gut microbiota that allowed the Clostridium difficile to actually cause infections, symptoms, inflammation, etc.
1: Well, how did you go about investigating this?
4: So we uh, collected samples from just about every single patient who came into our medical intensive care unit over a nine-month period. So it was uh, about 1,200 patients, and we collected about 4,000 samples from them. And these were rectal swab samples or um, fecal, so stool samples from these patients. And then we cultured those samples. And then when we cultured Clostridium difficile, from those samples did a whole genome sequence analysis to genetically type the organisms and then compared those genomes uh, to see how similar they were then using the associated epidemiologic data. So the time that the patients were in the ICU, the place they were in the ICU, try to correlate relationships between isolates and, and determine whether or not there was epidemiologic or genomic support for cross transmission of C. diff in patients who came in negative for C. diff, but then were found to be positive for C. diff later in their ICU stay.
1: And and was there cross-transmission?
4: We found almost no evidence, either epidemiologically or genomically, of cross-transmission. These patients who developed Clostridium difficile infection while in our intensive care unit developed it typically because of um, strains that they carried into the hospital sort of silently colonized. Um, and then there was a trigger that we still don't really understand what that trigger was in these individual uh, patients who developed then um, infection uh, from this organism that they had carried silently before. So it really seemed that this silent carriage at the time of admission was the biggest risk factor for this group of patients to develop Clostridium difficile. And very few of them acquired Clostridium difficile, and then even fewer of those who acquired the organism actually developed the disease due to cross transmission. So it was only about 1% in total who were at risk of acquiring C. diff who we had evidence of them acquiring it by cross transmission.
1: What went through your mind when you saw how little actual transmission occurred?
4: So this was very exciting because this is sort of, you know, paradigm shifting. Typically, When we are trying to control C diff in a in a healthcare setting like an ICU, we focus very intensively on reducing cross transmission. So it it seemed as though we were doing a very good job of that, and in fact, I I think we are. And there are a number of factors uh, in my unit in the ICU at our hospital that um, probably contribute to that, to that success. And that is that all of those rooms are, are single rooms. We used a sporicidal agent routinely throughout the entire unit. So a, a, a disinfectant for environmental surfaces in that unit that was known to be active against Clostridium difficile. Um, and then we do have um, good um, hand hygiene. We, we have uh, routine hand hygiene monitoring. So I think all of those things probably reduce the cross-transmission to uh, a a pretty low level. And so what we're left with Mm -hmm. are these residual cases of infection that develop, and uh, we really have to think of new ways of preventing those.
1: Mm -hmm. So if the majority of these patients already had C. difficile in their bodies when they entered the hospital, why did it suddenly make them sick?
4: So that is a million-dollar question. There's some trigger that occurs, and we're not sure what that trigger is. We, we suspected that it was going to be antibiotic exposure. When we looked at that carefully, we could not Prove that in this study, perhaps due to the small number of patients who did become sick with C. difficile, as well as the large number of patients who received antibiotics. It was just hard to tease the groups apart. But it was probably some combination of, you know, exposure to antibiotics, exposure to other uh, new medications and procedures, the underlying illness that put the patient in the ICU in the first place, and then the changes in the patient's immune response, and then to their C. difficile, all in combination that allowed them the C. Diff to develop into an infection. But that's certainly, you know, an area of uh, intensive investigation.
1: Is what you're seeing in your study likely what's happening with C. difficile in other hospitals?
4: Well, we'll have to see. I suspect that, you know, in high-income, well-resourced hospitals, um, I think that probably, you know, there may be very similar situations. In in hospitals that still have many multi-bedrooms or that don't have... um, the basic infection prevention measures optimized. Uh, so again, uh, environmental cleaning, hand hygiene, there may be more cross-transmission of C. difficile in those settings than in our hospital. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, I know some of the headlines that have come out related to this paper have um, implied that we don't need measures any longer to reduce cross-transmission. And I don't think that's the case. And any further reduction in Clostridium difficile will have to be due to other sorts of uh, interventions. So right now we can think about antibiotic stewardship, but then some of the more novel interventions that are coming down the pipelines, like, uh, you know, some biotherapeutics, um, microbial consortia, for example, that might restore um, a microbiota in the gut that would, you know, resist colonization by C. diff or would uh, not allow C. difficile to expand or to produce enough toxin to cause Disease. But those are, uh, there are a couple that are FDA approved in this country now, but uh, for the most part, not widely available yet.
1: Dr. Hayden, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Dr. Mary Hayden is a professor and director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Rush University Medical College and the director of clinical microbiology at Rush Medical Laboratories in Chicago.
0: I'm Jordan Heath Rawlings, host of The Big Story. For six years now, we've been telling one story a day, every one of them about something that matters to Canadians. This spring, though, we're going deeper. The Big Story presents Pay Dirt, the inside story of Ontario's Greenbelt scandal. From political games to stag and doe parties, endangered species, RCMP investigations, and Las Vegas massages, you will hear the full story. The Big Story presents Pay Dirt. New episodes every Monday, and you can get them all by following the big story wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I'm Bob McDonald, and you're listening to Quirks and Quarks on CBC Radio 1. Coming up later in the show, a new book looks at ugly babies. They're not cute and cuddly, but these infant animals can be fascinating.
3: Baby animals can be at once some of the most vulnerable animals on the planet, and at the same time some of the most powerful.
1: Cows and cattle ranching may seem like the most American things ever. Or at least that's what Hollywood westerns would have you believe. But 600 years ago, no longhorns or Holsteins roamed the North American continent, or anywhere else in the Western Hemisphere for that matter. It's thought that the first cows in the Americas arrived in the Caribbean islands on one of Columbus's voyages in the late 15th century. They were eventually brought to Mexico when Spanish colonization expanded to that region. But it's not when they arrived, but where they came from that intrigued researcher Nicola del Sol. So he set out to investigate the origins of the cattle of the Americas. And What he discovered not only helps us better understand the history of cattle, but gives new insights into who was caring for those beasts as well. The America's first cowboys, as it were. Dr. Del Sol is a postdoctoral researcher at the Florida Museum of Natural History, where he conducted his study as part of the Historical Archaeology Program. Hello and welcome to our program.
5: Thank you for having me.
1: So where did the ancestors of cows we see in the Americas today come from? What we know from,
5: uh, you know, the historical accounts of Europeans who arrived in the Americas in the late uh, 15th century is that uh, cows were brought from southern Spain, most likely, transiting via the Canary Island and then uh, were brought first to the Caribbean and then to the mainland, to Mexico and Panama.
1: So how did you figure out where they really came from originally?
5: We knew that the history of cattle in the Americas, in the whole continent, was a bit more complicated than, you know, these first historical accounts. We wanted to use the, the tools of, uh, you know, the ancient DNA analysis to clarify a little bit more this history and to know, for example, if they all came from Europe initially or if there was like some mix at some point. Because... When you look at the, the heritage breeds in the Americas, uh, the modern specimens of these breeds, they all bear uh, a significant genetic component of African cattle. But the question was, when did that interbreeding with African cattle occur? Is it like more or less recent? Was it before the European colonization of the continent? So that's why we, we started uh, this these analysis of uh, archaeological remains to clarify this history using the, the modern tools of uh, ancient DNA
1: analysis. Well, how old were the bones that you studied?
5: Some of them were around 500 years old. We studied bones from uh, the site of Puerto Real, in, in, which is now in Haiti, so one of the earliest uh, European towns in, uh, in the Caribbean. Uh, and some other remains were much more recent. We had like some some remains from uh, Mexico City, from downtown Mexico City, um, some others from uh, Merida in Yucatan, which are like around 300 years old. So like a time span between five and 300 years old.
1: So what did you see when you looked at the DNA of these ancient bones?
5: First of all, the conventional historical narrative about the first cows were brought in small numbers to the greater Caribbean islands of La Hispaniola, Cuba, Jamaica. And there they were bred locally and they served as the basis of, you know, the future herds that were introduced in Mexico and other regions of uh, the mainland Americas. What we saw is that instead of, you know, having that kind of bottleneck effect, on the contrary, we see more diversity, more genetic diversity, among the specimens in later sites, which would imply that, you know, instead of having like a few animals brought, you know, at the beginning of the 16th century, you had a steady supply of animals that were brought by ship across the Atlantic, which is interesting by itself uh, because, you know, being brought aboard uh, ship together, with, you know, with the, the crew and everything, it was a big uh, logistical investment. And maybe the, one of the most compelling results of our study is that we just uh, studied 21 specimens for this study. But among these specimens, we found at least one individual which uh, bears um, genetic signals clearly relating it to an African variety of cattle, uh, which, is, which has never been observed uh, in Europe. This specimen in particular comes from downtown Mexico City, uh, in it's from a site dated of the early 17th century.
1: So if they came from Africa, how do they get from Africa to North America?
5: It was one of our working hypotheses to maybe we have, we can find in the archaeological record, some cattle specimens that come from Africa. Why? Because... Very, very early uh, in, the, you know, in the colonization of the Americas, cattle ranching became one of the main economic activities for the colonists, with herds counting in, 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 you know, in the thousands. And according to historical documents, many of these first ranchers in, in Mexico or in the Caribbean were actually uh, of African ancestry. And more particularly after the second half of the 16th century, when you have this rise uh, of the slave trade between, between Europe, West Africa, and the Americas, when the Spanish like start like deporting uh, many, many people from West Africa to the Americas. And so if you put that in relation to our finding, that's particularly significant, especially because in these regions of West Africa, Some populations, some communities like the Fulani people, they are cattle, you know, traditionally cattle herders and have a lifestyle that is essentially based on cattle. So it's likely that they were being brought for their skills as ranchers to help with the implementation of cattle ranching in the Americas.
1: Wow. So in other words, uh, the, the people who were brought over as slaves were actually cattle ranchers and cattle handlers,
5: Yes, many of the cattle ranchers were actually of African descent. Yeah, exactly.
1: How surprising was it for you to see how uh, American cows had African origins?
5: Yeah, I mean, it was very kind of surprising to me, you know, to to have this uh, complete shift in our perspective on cattle ranching and and even also the the general history of, you know, the cowboys. It's pretty fascinating story to me, and pretty like you know kind of changing the way we see the world, and like more particular the colonization uh, of of the Americas and all the changes
1: that entailed. Well, you've certainly changed the image of the cowboy. <laughs> <laughs> so, what are you planning to study next? So, I'm I'm ke- keeping on following cattle,
5: but I'm I'm coming I'm coming to you guys. I'm coming up north <laughs> to oh, really? uh, yes, in January I'm gonna start. Uh, a research project in uh, in Quebec, in Université Laval. I'm going to try to clarify the history of the of the first cows that were brought by the the, the, the French settlers in Quebec and in the Saint Lawrence Valley, and also understand better the history of the Canadian
1: cow. Do You think our Canadian cattle are also linked to Africa way back? I mean why
5: not uh, that's that's still a possibility what the conventional knowledge on the Canadian cow and the, the history of, of these cows is, is that they descend from uh, breeds uh, you know imported from Western France but that, that's what we're gonna clarify I mean maybe we're up for new surprises as well
1: <laughs> dr. del Sol thank you so much for your time thank you dr. Nicola del Sol is a postdoctoral researcher at the Florida Museum of Natural History <laughs> Baby animals, their big eyes, their soft, downy fur, their chonky limbs that make us go aww. It all combines to cause the intense need to cuddle and protect them. But not all of the babies in the world are the stuff of Hallmark cards. Some are tiny specks that travel with ocean currents. Others lay dormant in your garden as larvae the size of a grain of rice. Some baby animals make delicious feed for our pet reptiles, and some are a good alternative protein source for humans. So there is good reason to pay attention to them. As scientist and author Dana Staff puts it, most animals on Earth are babies. They come in all shapes and sizes. And some babies look so different from their adult forms that scientists have mistaken them for an entirely different species of animal. Staff explores the outsized impact of the little ones in her new book, Nursery Earth, The Wondrous Lives of Baby Animals and the Extraordinary Ways They Shape Our World. Hello and welcome to Quirks and Quarks.
3: Thank you so much. It's great to be here.
1: What inspired you to write a book about some of the less cute and cuddly babies of the animal kingdom?
3: I started out as a young child loving all the cute ones and then As I sort of matured in my scientific career, I started to learn about all of the other babies in the world, all of the caterpillars and all of the maggots. And I think what really crystallized it for me was a summer course that I took when I was in graduate school. And I was studying, for my research, the babies and early life stages of squid, um, which I think are still awfully adorable. But you have to think that a squid-shaped being is cute to go along. (laughs) with. that. <laughs> and um, and to learn more about how to study these tiny little marine babies, I took a summer course at Friday Harbor in Washington State that was all about marine babies, so the babies of animals that live in the ocean. And it was like going to outer space and meeting a bunch of aliens. That's how <laughs> weird a lot of these babies were. And I think that was kind of the seed or the egg, if you will, of what turned into this book.
1: Well, what are some of the challenges of studying these early parts of the animal's life cycle, especially when they're living in the ocean and they look so different from their parents?
3: Yeah, it can be really tricky because partly just for the raw size, um, I mean, if you think about it, even taking care of a baby human, if you're asked to care for a newborn, there's all of these considerations that you have to take into account that you don't worry about if you have a toddler or an older child. Um, They're physically fragile. You want to make sure that they don't suffocate, that they get enough to breathe, that they get enough to eat. And all of that stuff is the same for babies of other species. So these tiny little baby squid or baby sea urchins or whatever it is, they need a space that is safe for them where they're not going to get caught in a water filter uh, or something that you wouldn't worry about with keeping a larger animal in an aquarium. And then figuring out what to feed them is often a big trick and was really one of the biggest challenges that we had with the squid babies. That they are so small, they can't eat the same things as the adults do and there isn't like. A bottle of squid milk to feed them. (laughs) (laughs) So we really had to experiment. Um, Are they eating little shrimp? Are they eating algae even? Are they eating like dissolved organic material in the water that's too small for us to even see?
1: Now a lot of the initial energy investment in babies comes from the parents and you give lots of examples of different parenting styles in the book. Uh, Do you have one that you found particularly unusual?
3: One that I find especially charming is the parenting of the Sicilian. Uh, Now, Sicilians are an animal that most of us are not familiar with, but they're related to frogs and newts and salamanders. They're a type of amphibian. They look kind of like a salamander, but without any legs. And these animals, the mothers will either lay eggs or give live birth. And the baby Sicilians, these tiny sort of wormy looking things, will actually eat from the mother's flesh as they are growing. It's a sort of like extra thick skin that she grows. I think of it as like a milk skin. It's just like mammals produce food from their bodies to feed their young. And the babies tear it off of her body with their teeth. And that's how they make it through to get big enough to go out and catch their own food. Wow.
1: (laughs) I've heard of children costing an arm and a leg to raise up, but that's taking it to the extreme.
3: It's really next level, yeah. (laughs) Now, there are
1: other animals, as you write, that save themselves the energy of raising their children, and um, they trick someone else into taking care of their young. Tell me about that.
3: Yes, this is the cuckoo strategy because the cuckoo bird has made it most famous. And when the time comes to lay their eggs, they find somebody else's nest to lay in. And by depositing their eggs in a different species of birds' nest, they completely opt out of this incredibly intensive process of raising baby birds and giving them all of the food and all the attention, all of the warmth that they need. But it is a cost, a different sort of cost for these parents because cuckoo moms have had to evolve to be super sneaky and super fast. And the strategy, however, is so advantageous that cuckoo behavior has evolved in many different groups of birds. And the cuckoo strategy has also evolved in lots of other animals. There are lots of cuckoo bees for example that will lay their eggs in another bee's colony and my favorite cuckoo animal of all is a butterfly that has evolved to have larvae larval butterflies are caterpillars of course so these caterpillars smell exactly like baby ants And so the mom butterfly doesn't even have to lay her eggs in an ant colony. She just lays her eggs. And when the larvae hatch out, when these caterpillars hatch out, they're on the ground smelling exactly like a baby ant. And the ants in the area smell it. And they come across it and they go, oh, my God, it's a lost baby. Alert, alert. Bring the baby ant home. And they pick up the caterpillar and bring it back to their nest, to their colony, where the ants raise the baby butterflies as their own babies.
1: One thing that's clear after reading your book is how sensitive young animals are to changes in their environment. Tell me about some of the environmental cues that are important to baby animals.
3: It's something that I really learned as I was researching the book and just found that I couldn't emphasize enough. It's really the the central message of development as scientists now understand it, that every animal is developing with a combination of nature and nurture. There's never just one of those things. There's always a genetic component to how an animal is, a baby animal is going to build its body as it grows, and there's always an environmental component. So from the very beginning in the egg to hatching from an egg or being born, if it's a species with live birth, they're taking in information from the environment. And some of these critical cues are very basic things like temperature, the amount of sunlight, the amount of oxygen in the air or in the water, so that they can build their body to take advantage of whatever the situation, whatever the environment they're being born into is. And in some cases, it's uh, it's different sort of things that are very specific to the situation, like what sort of food they're being fed is then going to sort of shape their whole body and all of the bacteria and microbes in their gut so that then they'll be able to digest those foods as they grow later in life.
1: And we know that we humans are changing the environment, so how is that affecting the babies of the world?
3: One of the interesting ways that it's doing that is through a couple of impacts of climate change, both changing temperature and in the ocean, particularly something called ocean acidification. As the carbon dioxide in the air increases, it gets dissolved and exchanged with the carbon dioxide in the water. And as it dissolves into the ocean, it creates a situation where there's an increased acidity in the ocean. And it's a fairly small amount compared to like, a bowl full of lemon juice, for example. Um, but it's a fairly significant amount, especially for babies, which as we've been talking about, there's they're very tiny and they're very sensitive to small changes. And so baby ocean animals, marine larvae, are very sensitive to these small changes in ocean acidification and they're sort of, they've sort of become the bellwethers or the canaries in the coal mine for how slight increases in acidity will affect how animals in the ocean can build things that are hard that can be eaten away by acidity or difficult to build when the ocean is acid like a skeleton. Whether it's an internal skeleton which a baby sea urchin has, they have these little rods that hold their body in the right shape and those little rods are more difficult to build and end up being built less well in a situation with increased acidity. Or if it's a baby seashell like a sea snail or a clam or a mussel or an animal that needs to build its shell, when they're very tiny and they're just starting to build that initial shell, it's extremely sensitive to any increases in acidity, and they'll have a harder time making their shell or keeping it from dissolving even. Mm
1: -hmm. Now, one of the uh, other stories that struck me uh, in your book is uh, the other way around, how baby creatures can shape their environment. And you give the example of the black soldier fly larva. Tell me about that.
3: Yes, so this is really, um, really cool to me. I love this this sort of duality that baby animals can be at once some of the most vulnerable animals on the planet, and at the same time, some of the most powerful. And a lot of it comes back to this voracious appetite that they have. Baby animals need a huge amount of energy. They're getting bigger. They're building a new body. They're building an adult body. And that means they need to eat so much. And in particular, insects like butterflies and like flies they spend most of their lives as larvae many of them and they are doing most or even all of their eating as larvae now the black soldier fly larvae have gotten a lot of attention from the scientific community because not only do the larvae of this particular species eat a lot but they will eat almost anything. I was talking to a researcher who studies these black soldier flies and has developed a lot of the techniques for keeping them, and he was explaining that they will consume pretty much anything. They'll go through compost, they'll go through animal waste, very fast they'll go through dead animals um he report he was telling me one little story of a vat of these black soldier fly larvae and he had seen a dead bird the carcass of a dead bird in there and the next time he looked it was just completely gone so they'll they'll scavenge anything and that has become an incredibly useful talent that humans have been developing. Like, hey, if we can use these to process, for example, the large amounts of animal waste that a lot of farms produce, which is more than can be used for fertilizer. Um, and if these black soldier fly larvae can process it, they actually produce their own waste. Uh, there's less of it. And it's actually better fertilizer because by eating it and processing it, the fly larvae have actually cleaned out a lot of the bacteria like E. coli that would make it sort of a risky thing to use as fertilizer on crops grown for human food. And they've taken out a lot of the water, which is what makes it heavier. So the what we call frass or the poop of the fly larvae becomes light and relatively safe and easy to transport and a better fertilizer.
1: Now you researched a lot of different kinds of babies uh, from larvae, plankton, chicks, kangaroo joeys. Is there any baby animal that you find particularly impressive?
3: There is. And for this, we have to go back into the ocean where the water is Full of tiny little babies of pretty much every adult marine creature out there like pretty much everything that lives on a coral reef or in a kelp forest or even in tide pools actually the first part of its life is usually floating free in the plankton drifting around on ocean currents and in all of these planktonic larvae there's one form that i especially love and it's called a trochophore. it's really tiny it's like a little spinning top Um, that uh, usually you can't really even see without a microscope. And I think what I love about these little spinning tops so much is that they have evolved in multiple adults. So if you look at a little trochophore, this tiny little spinning top, and it's got like a little skirt of cilia all around it, which are little hairs that it uses to gather its food. And if you keep it in a laboratory, some trochophores are going to grow up to become really beautiful marine worms. Uh, worms in the ocean are not like earthworms in your garden. They are colorful, a lot of them have uh, tentacles that look like Christmas trees. They Some of them look like dragons moving through the underwater. They're very beautiful and uh, they all start as these tiny little spinning trochophores and then some of those trochophores are actually going to grow up to become marine snails. Some of the most beautiful seashells that you can think of starts out as a trochophore and I think that's why I love them so much is that clearly over time evolution has arrived at and honed this form that's just exactly what it needs to be. It's basically a mouth and a stomach and the means for getting food and just enough ability to swim that it can adjust a little bit where it's going in the ocean currents and it can get what it needs as it grows up and becomes all of these different marine forms.
1: You say in your book that most animals in the world are babies. Uh, what's the most surprising thing you learned in researching your book?
3: I think that The biggest surprise in researching this was how similar babies of wildly different adults are. And I don't mean visually, although there is that example of the trochophores that I was talking about where they're surprisingly visually similar, but the surprise is how similar animals are in developing and building a body. This realization that every single animal, whether it's a snail or a bird or a snake, or a Sicilian, or even a human, we all start as a single cell. And we have to divide and divide and divide and build ourselves into a body that has organs and tissues and an ability to move around. And it's amazing to me that the babies, of all of these different animals use, for example, almost all of the same genes, like the the genetic underpinnings of building limbs, whether they're going to be wings or arms or flippers, are all conserved. And the way that an animal builds a gut with a mouth and a place to digest food, that's all the same too. And it's so neat to see how that conservation of a process, of a developmental process, can be used in so many different ways. And it's all depending on the environment that those animals find themselves in that has, over time, evolved all of these different structures to adapt to those different environments. But the, the central process of building a body out of a single cell is very similar.
1: And how the babies can grow brains eventually to take in the wonder of it all. Dr. Staff, thank you so much for your time.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Dana Staff is a scientist, artist, and author of the book, Nursery Earth, The Wondrous Lives of Baby Animals and the Extraordinary Ways They Shape Our World. And that's it for Quirks and Quarks this week. If you'd like to get in touch with us, our email is quirks at cbc.ca. Or just go to the contact link on our webpage at cbc.ca slash Quirks, where you can read my latest blog or listen to our audio archives. You can also follow our podcast or get us on the CBC Listen app. It's free from the App Store or Google Play. Quirks and Quarks was produced by Olsi Sorokina, Sonia Biting, and Mark Crawley. Our senior producer is Jim Lebens. I'm Bob McDonald. Thanks for listening.